My name is Andrea Baker and welcome to the Conversation podcast. At the Melbourne Writers' Festival this month, a panel of poets, writers and performers will read and reflect on the poetry of World War I. Among them is Mark Seymour, the frontman of Hunters and Collectors. There's some note there that some musicians say that, you know, songwriting, um, there's love, death, loss, and you just dress them up in different ways. Do you, do you agree with that? When, or do you feel as if your songwriting is more broad than that? All of those things. The mechanism that I think is crucial is the way you express the language is you manipulate language so that you convey a sense of personal engagement with the subject. If, even if you're trying to convey an idea to people that, that doesn't directly relate to you in terms of content, you still express it in such a way that your voice comes through. With your latest album, Seven Heaven Club, it's mostly love songs. At all, is all there. Yeah, yes, right. and it's covers. Yeah. And um, you were quoted as saying that you chose that because for that you were focusing on your voice in the delivery there, that there were other people's songs. Just talk about some of the songs you've chosen. I mean, there's uh, probably the Dave Dobbin song, Beside You, which I have a really close connection with because it's a, it's a New Zealand experience and my, almost my, all my immediate family were born in New Zealand. And then um, the Dylan song, I Can't Wait, is a really powerful blues, which I found really easy to get my teeth into, you know. So with the singer-songwriters, um, there's, uh, but there's also Lucina Williams, Neil Young, you draw to them on your latest yeah. album, and you yeah. also bring in your daughter, which is the first time bringing Little in Hannah. Hannah. Well, there are three duets. There's Abby Dobson, Lucinda Williams, and Hannah. I thought it was really important to engage with a female singer, you know, to have that voice within my sound, and that's, that's, that'll be ongoing in one form or another. Um, but, you know, I was looking for just levels of expression that would inform my ongoing work. I wasn't ready to make another original record, mm. but, you know, I wanted to sing some of the songs that were on that album and they were in my set yeah. already. So I just thought, why not, you know, investigate what it is about those, there were only two or three of them, that actually was holding my interest, you know. Well, it was the song, the songwriting would also hold your interest besides the musician itself. Yeah, and their, and their capacity to perform, like, mm. you know, the, well, it's, interestingly enough, the version of, of I Can't Wait, which really got my attention, was off a bootleg of his, well, it's, it's an official bootleg, uh, where he just performs it on piano. And, 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 you, and you hear him say at the start, why don't you just try uh, hey, uh, B flat, play in B flat. And they're all around him in the room and he just mm. starts playing it, bong, bong, bong. And you kind of get the idea that he's just launching him. He's totally engaged in the moment and, and that they, you hear the guys come in around him. And I just found that really inspiring. Whereas the version of the song that is on Time Out of Mind, it's still fantastic, but it just doesn't have the same gravity and that really interested me, you know. That in itself is a telling point, I think, about what singer-songwriters do. I mean, there's so much is made of the idea of, you know, the guy that, that, that has his guitar and he, he just, you know, is searching for the muse and people have become really absorbed and fascinated by that process and how it actually, you know, what messages he's conveying and all of that's really important. But um, but there, there's also the question of his relationship with an audience in a really physical way, like the connection that, that, that he's endeavouring to make. And there's all of the personal psychology that goes into that. 
I mean, I just don't see the art form as a separate as separate from all those other questions. Of course, and therefore you, know. you obviously see the performance as a collaborative experience, a highly collaborative experience. Yeah. Community so, is a good word. Community, community, definitely, and therefore there's a community that you'll be working with at the Melbourne Writers' Festival this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so what made you um, agree to participate in Words and War Passing Bells? I've always been fascinated by war. <laughs> really? Uh, I've always really? been interested in it. Yeah, it's always really. And the First World War was, it loomed on my, in my childhood really darkly. I, there were, in, in, I mean, intimations of it. And my family weren't, my immediate family weren't ever directly involved in mm. war, but the, but the signs were there in the landscape again, you know, like I, you know, I encountered it in the avenues. When we first went out west and saw all the avenues of honour when I was about five years old. We drove out, you know, Dad was going out to work, found, had a job out in Beaufort. And, I, and, and that coupled with seeing the little, the, 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 the photographs of my mother's uncles on the mantelpiece and those yeah. black, black and white photos with the, the dark, sorrowful eyes and the cap, you know, mm -hmm. I, and that really distilled something in my mind when I was a kid. So there was always something really shadowy and sinister about the past that, I, I kind of must have linked in with other things. So growing up in regional Victoria, you would have seen all those trees being planted for all the young soldiers that have passed away during the wars. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, you know, as I've gotten older and I've sort of tr got a better sense of the broad sweep of history, I think that all of that effort people put in to, to really mark the landscape with signs of that cataclysm was a direct consequence of the degree of suffering that Australia succumb to you know I mean we really there was this massive bloodletting and the flower of our men mm. just were mown down and yet we we agreed to do it mm. and that just set up a whole and I never forgot that I mean I always found that doc, the, the sheer absurdity of that never left me I mean I, I when I became completely obsessed with uh, Vietnam War I mean I remember when I was a, a you know a teenager in the 70s and I used to, I had huge conflict with my father over that because, I mean, he, his politics were left on the left and yet he, he because he was a, um, a high school principal, he had a duty to maintain the, the integrity of his institution, which was the school, and the kids were going out and striking on the Oval and there was all this sort of massive social upheaval over that war. So, you know, I, I saw the two things as being connected. and. So when the Melbourne Writers Festival team asked you... Sorry, I've digressed. You know, no, yeah, um, that's cool. When, when they asked you to participate in the poetry of World War I, you didn't hesitate. You really wanted to do it. No, and I also really like the idea of reading. Yeah. Yeah, I, like, I really like reading, you know, the yeah. idea of, of reading well and, and using your voice as a, as a tool. In relation to this event, which poet or which piece are you reading? Uh, well, I'm doing Sassoon, and it describes uh, a British kid who is right on the edge of death and he's physically experiencing the glimmerings of death in the room and the poem just scans the, the physical reality of where he is and the sensation of the wound and his gradual retreat from pain. And it's really powerful. And, and then right at the end, as he succumbs, Sassoon describes the sound of thunder in the distance, you know, the, the cannon, the artillery, and it, it's still there. And his death is so profound and yet 
so utterly insignificant. Do you think this may inspire you to write some songs at all or from this experience of just reading this poetry? I'm intrigued by the fact that Sassoon is able to express with real palpable, you know, it's palpable, this vision of the character inside that state. And he can only have uh, imagined that through directly seeing the death around him, like to see people dying, you know, at first hand, and obviously on a massive scale, but then to try and put himself into the mind's eye of that person. And to me, the idea of, you know, shoehorning imagination into, into the condition of another human being, I reckon is, that's kind of like the A game in songwriting. If you can mm. do that, then you're really doing well. And it, like the songwriting, of course, is a fluid thing and you try to raise the bar as high as you can, you know, because as I said, as we discussed earlier, you are trying to express emo some form of emotional truth. Well, definitely. So you, for 18 years, you were with Hunters and Collectors and um, you were quoted as saying that you probably won't write songs with them again or, re or reunite, but you did reunite briefly last year. So what was that like? It was great. It was really good. It was uh, very... Uh, powerful and easy to do you know it was played the band played really well crowds were huge uh, so it, th there was no downside to that at all <laughs> you know except it was really hard work it was physically really demanding but you know I think the most m the most moving show that I've played with that band was after its so-called retirement was the gig for the sound relief benefit at the MCG in when was it 2009 uh, for the bushfire. 2009, yeah, that, that was a really incredible event. Phenomenal community, sense of community. I mean, in that, in that space, the MCG, with those numbers, it was just really incredibly inspiring thing to be involved in, yeah. Because you wrote um, highly critically appraised book, uh, 13 Tonne Theory, in 2008. In that book, you said, how could a band so good fail so often? I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> well, you didn't really fail, really. The band was successful, critically acclaimed locally. Is it because you felt you didn't make it overseas? Oh, is yeah. Most definitely. That's, and that's why a big do you think issue. that's so? But is it an issue? Yeah, because we tried. And, you know, in order to try and succeed on the world stage, you know, big ambition, you, you basically got to work out how to do it and you set yourself up, you know, to do that and then you don't pull it off. And that's, there's a huge emotional cost in that. And which is part of the reason why I wrote the book. You know, I always felt the band wasn't understood. I still don't think it's really understood. Um, well, there's been interesting quotes about the band from you and from other people. A trade union, a bunch of commos, um, which you have described as noble but destructive qualities. Because you had this collective idea in the band that the royalties were shared equally. Why would that be destructive? I think that would be quite... Because it's, you know, you know how can I put it? Uh, look, I am a big believer in egalitarianism. I, I am a firm supporter of collective bargaining. I'm a, I support trade unions. I think they are an absolutely integral part of modern economies. So let's just get that clear. Mm. Um, so I'm not... By making those comments, I don't see myself as, I'm not contradicting anything that I believe. What I, mean, what I am saying is that there are ideals we strive for which are achievable from time to time in history and we are competing with alternative philosophies and which are driven by human behaviour. Human behaviour is inevitably driven by self-interest but we also have 
we strive for community, human being, all of us do that, regardless of our politics. And those forces are mutually in contest within everyone, including the members of Hunters and Collectors. So, you know, despite the fact that the idea of, of having a, an egalitarian scenario as you could possibly get organisationally worked well sometimes, and then at other times it just created this thunderstorm of conjecture and debate and argument about the most trivial stuff that just didn't need to be addressed, purely on the basis of individuals' territory and their sense of self-worth and whatever baggage they'll bring into the room on the day. Because in, the, um, because in that book you were quoted when, in reference to the Virgin Records deal that you had in the UK, you quoted George Orwell and you said, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Yeah, well, see, some people in the group were, were more fine, had their self-interest more finely geared up so they could go into it, engage in the in the protocols that the band were laid down by the group but always kept their eye on the main game which was their own and there was one guy in the group at one point said towards the end i remember when we were and, and look you know you know this is nothing personal in this he just said i remember him saying i'm motivated by a maximizing personal potential and maximizing personal profit and i remember at the time it was sort of i don't know 92 93 something like that and I don't know if that's in the book or not. A lot of stuff got cut out, but I remember hearing him say that and I just felt deeply offended. So basically he was more interested in commercial success rather than critical success. Well, he was interested in his own success, mm. which on the face of it is entirely reasonable. It's a completely reasonable mm. position. But in the, but in the context of, of Hunters and Collectors, mm. it, was, it was not, to me, it just seemed inappropriate. And I, I couldn't help thinking you, he was saying it to to really get up my nose, you know. But he probably wasn't, he was just being honest, you know. Mm. But for me, cognitive dissonance. It's like I'm going, hang on, this doesn't make sense to what with what I've been doing for the last 15 years, you know. Yeah. And uh, it was like a real watershed moment. It's interesting in the book, you talk about roadies. In fact, you give 20 pages to roadies. And, oh, yeah, you're really And hilarious. you were a roadie for the Melbourne-based post-punk band The Birthday Party yeah. with Nick Cave, Mick Harvey, Tracy Pugh, Roland S. Howard. I've often imagined them guys passing that book around in the back of their bus. You know, and um, you, which you describe that experience as part terror I remember trying and to part get... euphoria. Yeah, working oh, they were just sensational. It was just uh, fantastic, incredibly exciting to do that job. You know, This it, is when you were starting out. Oh, well, Hunters, hunters were going. The, the connection was that the bass player from Hunters and Collectors, John Archer, had a PA and we used it. Uh, but he also hired it out to other bands. So he hired me as a roadie. To work with the birthday <laughs> to, party. Yeah, and that, that happened to be one of the gigs we did. So. And there's sort of these, these different rumours that um, while Nick Kay was on stage that you protected him, his man parts is a quote, from other people on the stage. In fact, you sort of saved him one night. Well, there was pe people grabbed him and held his legs down and, you know, he was... He was putting himself at significant risk, you know. <laughs> and years later, I think only recently last year... Man they, parts. I don't know yeah, if I use that term. Well, well manhood parts um, <laughs> is some of the, uh, the quote. Apparently last year when Nick Cave was asked about this incident, he said, hmm, Mark Seymour, who? Who was he? And then he said, oh, Mark Seymour. And he, then he was quoted as saying... Yes, uh, I think we'd all like to be saved by Mark Seymour. <laughs> so, he is a very clever man. Your career's been very multi-layered. You've been a musician, you've been in acting, you've been in TV, and now the Melbourne Writers Festival. What else is left for Mark Seymour? You've been very gracious, I have to say. I am in, trying to get this record finished. We're making an album, and it's proven to be... With Undertow? 
Yeah. The undertow, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's we're in the thick of that. You know, we'll definitely have it finished in about five weeks, I would say. But I'm still writing, so that's kind of where I am right now. And uh, right. and when that's done, there'll be work. We'll obviously release it next year. And uh, and then I'm going to sort of throw myself into this other thing, which is the book. Mm. Which, yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me today, Mark Seymour, and I look forward to your event, Words and War, Passing Bells at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Thank you very much. Thank you.